The Boundless Pursuit Podcast is proudly sponsored by Built Wild DNA. Fuel your day on the water in a constructive and healthy way. Energy and fitness supplements designed with the outdoorsman in mind. Get your physicality in line with your mentality and maximize your time on the water. Use promo code BOUNDLESSPURSUIT for 10% off of your next order at BuiltWildDNA.com. Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. My guest today is Chris Madison of California. Now, this is a cross-country conversation where I'm sitting here on my back porch in South Florida, conversating with an awesome angler all the way on the other side of the country. Now, week in and week out, I'm trying to bring on to this podcast diverse anglers from all over the country with all kinds of different unique skill sets and experiences, all just to showcase different various pursuits in fishing. And Chris is certainly no different. One look at this guy's page and you know right off the bat, this is a big game angler. But the edge here is that Chris is chasing monster fish out of an inflatable boat. And when you start mixing monster apex predators like mako sharks, threshers, swordfish, marlin, bluefin tuna, and other monster fish with an inflatable boat, I got a lot of questions. And this is a guy that found a way to chase the biggest fish possible on his coastline on a simple budget. But these are fish with teeth, with spines, with bills, with other sharp edges, and just body mass, monstrous fish that can grow hundreds of pounds. And mixing that with an inflatable boat just seems like a recipe for disaster. But I love this. So this is just an opportunity for me to learn about a style of fishing that I have no experience with. So I'm learning just as much as anybody else. So we're just talking about tactics, the benefits and the advantages of using this type of watercraft. And it was really just a cool meeting of the minds between two anglers from different sides of the country. I had a lot of fun with this one. This is Chris Madison. We'll get rolling here. We're we're good. We enough small talk here. We'll get right down to business. So but anyway, dude, I don't even know what time it is there. You're all the way in California. We're like three different time zones apart. You're in California, right? I want to make sure I, I got my, my yeah, stuff right here. So, so you're coming to the show from all the way on the other side of the country. So that's kind of like, it's what I love doing about this podcast is I get to like spread it around and talk to dudes who, you know, I, I follow on Instagram. I see their pictures. I get little snapshots and, you know, you see these people who do these really awesome things, but you don't know the person. But, um, but you know, this, that's what this has afforded me the opportunity to do so shout out to uh i guess mutual connection or mutual friend spencer 
uh, Spencer Wonder, who was the first guest ever on the podcast. Right after we recorded, he specifically suggested that I reach out to you. So, you know, you talk about a guy like that who's caught so many crazy, wild things. I'm like, all right, well, if he suggests somebody, maybe they must be worth looking into. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, dude, so I think what it was about your page that reeled me in, you know what I mean, is you're doing this unique style of fishing all the way on the other side of the country catching fish I've never come close to catching and you're doing it out of inflatable boats. But, um, I don't know, man. It's like this pelagic fishing from inflatable boats. I have so many questions about it. I don't even know where to begin, but am I using the right terms? I think you tried to enlighten me inflatable boats, Zodiacs. What is the right um, term for these things? So Zodiac is actually, it's a, that's a manufacturer. That's a, uh, a brand. Oh, so you okay. have Zodiac makes the mill pro. Um, and then you have Achilles, uh, Inmar, they're the higher end inflatable boats. Um, I haven't touched those boats yet. We have the Zodiacs at work. I am active duty in the Marine Corps. Uh, oh, okay. And they're a lot more robust and thicker material. You throw them out of helicopters, dive in after them, and then take them to the beach. Um, the boats that I use, we, we don't do that. They're made out of PVC. They're zero... 0.9 millimeter to 1.2 millimeters in thickness, which it sounds really thin, but I mean, you can take, you can take your fillet knife and hit it a couple times and it's not going to, it's not going to cut through. Um, so they're actually, we have sibs and ribs. A sib is a soft inflatable boat. And that means it it's completely soft. There's no rigid hull. Yeah. Uh, they have inflatable floors or, They'll have aluminum or wooden decks that come in sections and you can put it in there and they'll have inflatable keels or no keel at all. Uh, I've been using the sibs and I think they're great because they roll up. You can put them in the trunk of a Prius. I mean, a Prius yeah. has a big trunk. <laughs> so I had a Chevy Cruze for a while and I could roll up my Kubota, which is 15 feet long and four and a half feet wide. I could roll it up and put it in the trunk of my uh, Chevy Cruze and then put the motor in the back seat. See, just, I, I guess you're already answering at least one of the questions is like, you know, the first thing I think is like, okay, you know, I, I'm going to ask the obvious stuff. When you start mixing inflatable boats with sharp objects, it's like, you know, the mind gets wondering a lot of it's probably coming from an ignorant place, but you know, I'm wondering like what advantages does a boat like that have over, I don't know, an aluminum boat, a big kayak, uh, small like a regular skiff like why would you choose to go out into the open ocean where all these giant toothy predators are an inflatable boat so you know i don't know man like what are some of the advantages something like that had that when you were weighing options i guess as a fisherman and you know i don't know if you started as a land-based guy and then the call of the sea was strong enough that you started looking yeah. at your options like what well, i need to get out there but how did you settle on I don't know, dude. It's like not a lot of people are doing that. I know a few guys, but like what made you decide to go the inflatable boat route? So it was mainly the cost. Uh, okay. You look at like the new Hobies. The new Hobies are sweet. I was trying to get out with my son, uh, get him out in the bays and inshore, going after halibut, bass, stuff like that. And I was really set on the Hobie 17T, which they discontinued the year prior when mm -hmm. I started looking at them. Uh, but then storage, you have a 17 foot 
plastic boat that you have to put inside of a garage or something yeah, or a storage or something like that. And uh, at the time I was in an apartment and I had a roommate and couldn't really store 17 foot kayak. And uh, so I started looking at the inflatable boats and my initial idea was only, you know, the bays and inshore and you're a couple miles off the beach at most hitting the kelp, um, 20 minute rides outside of the Harbor, nothing crazy. And I started looking at them and I noticed that there's actually ones that are made for outfitters, like up in Alaska and guys use them in Hawaii and stuff like that. And they have uh, two layers of PVC on the bottom and they're su super thick on the top. So you have like 2.4 millimeters of uh, PVC on the bottom to rub against rocks and stuff. Okay. And they also have, they also have multiple chambers. So on each side, there's a tube on each side and it connects up at the front for the Kubot, the Saturn SK 470 that I had. Um, it had two chambers on each side. So it had a rear chamber and a front chamber. And then on the other side, it also had a rear and front. And then the floor was inflatable. So really that's five chambers. Uh, we did have a couple mishaps where I had a couple <laughs> small holes that I was able to patch on the water. Um, but one of them was we hooked a Mako trolling a little like a, a high-speed lipless lure, sort of like a Mad Mac, but it's made by Savage. I think it's called Speed Mac. Um, was not targeting Mako, but we ended up hooking one, and he came up all wrapped up in the leader and tail wrapped, and uh, my son was reeling him in, and I was like, hey, do you want to release him or take him? And we looked at how wrapped up he was, and I figured if I cut the line, he was you know, just going to have all that mono around him. So threw a flying gaff at him, and the flying gaff didn't come apart like it's supposed to. Yeah, that was my error. I wasn't maintaining it like I should have. Uh, but yeah, it <laughs> ended up it ended up spinning, and I let go, and I have it on fifty feet of rope, and I was hoping that it would drift away from the boat. Well, as soon as I let go, he went under the boat, and then either a tooth or the gaff punctured a hole in the. It was the back right chamber, and it was underwater, so I couldn't get to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we lost the whole chamber. And we were about six miles outside the harbor. Uh, we were able to make it back doing six miles an hour, uh, dragged the Mako back by the tail and <laughs> got back in the harbor just fine. Oh, so. gosh. Well, then I guess we'll cut to the chase there. You know, I've got questions about the boat. We'll circle back to. But it's like <laughs> the, for people listening, like we're not talking about going out and catching bluegill and walleye out of an inflatable boat. Like I look at your photos <laughs> and they're like, it's all the types of fish that have sharp objects on them. Like you couldn't have chosen like, you know, cuddly fish. It was like Mako sharks, swordfish, these huge tuna giant, like we're talking big game pelagic species out in an inflatable boat that require using a gaff. So it's like between your hooks, any potential tools and knives, the teeth, the whatever sharp sides that the fish have, the gaff itself. I'm like, there's so many margins for error out there in the ocean and essentially a giant, you know, my mind is like, you're out there on a balloon and one pop in your toast, but it's like, you know, you're obviously, you know, and idiots didn't manufacture these and an idiot wouldn't go out on one if it didn't have safety measures in place. So you're sort of getting to that. But, you know, I think to myself, something like a swordfish, very ignorantly, although maybe it's realistically like the hazards that it presents, you're like, oh, you know, the mind goes straight to, well, well what does he do if it pokes its, you know, bill into the side of the boat? 
What do you do though? Like that, the people are listening are going to ask the silly questions like me. If you pop that thing, if a shark bites it, if you gaff the side of it, what I mean, what do you do? Like, is there p- silly putty? Some do you slap some? Uh, what's that tape that they have? Uh, uh flex seal, flex the flex tape. Flex seal, flex seal honestly <laughs> doesn't work on it, believe it or not. Ah, <laughs> uh, what the hell? Come on, uh, flex seal. So, so they come with a patch kit and it comes with little tiny, like four inch by four inch squares of PVC, and then it has this almost like jelly super glue in a little uh, a little metal tube and you dry off the area on both sides on the patch and the part of the boat and then slap that on there on each side let it let it dry for probably like 15 seconds and put the two of them together and you know it adheres itself together and doesn't let air out it's really surprising okay uh, but that's that's a quick fix to get back into the harbor or get back mm-hmm. on land and then they have all these two-part glues that you can use. And when I had to patch my boat before, I did an internal patch. So you actually cut the hole bigger, put an internal patch, and then put an external patch. So then, you know, you have that sandwich between there. And I never had any issues after that, at least not with leaking out of the uh, the hole, you know? Yeah. And now, like, you know, you, you keep mentioning chambers. So I'm like, help me understand that. It's like, it's not like if you poke a hole in... You know, I think of like the main structure that's around you, that like the real big round part that's, you know, that's to, that's to your right and to your left. If that gets poked, is it's not just one one piece, right. is it? Did you say it's like no. segmented it has, off? It has baffles in there, which divides it. So okay. each tube on each side. Um, the bigger, I don't even know how to say the name. It's B-R-I-S. Some people say Briz. Some people say Bree. But it's the the black boat that I'm using now. It has five. So the front is one chamber. It's all one big tube, but it has baffles in there. So the front bow is one chamber, and then it has two on each side. And each one has its own valve that you connect to to inflate them. And then you pressurize each one individually. Okay. So if one, if one fails, then the other four will still be there. Yeah, okay. So it'd have to be a pretty like considerable tear, like to really threaten you to go down, I would hope, right. I would guess. <laughs> yeah. So when you said that the one had gotten punctured underneath, how did you know? Did you see bubbles? Like, what is it? Was it like, you know, fizzing oh, was, in the back? <laughs> no, it was it was a loud hiss. And uh-uh. instant, instantly I started seeing it lose pressure. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine being out in the ocean on an inflatable boat. and, he, and The last thing you want to hear is a, a hissing noise. Yeah. But, uh, no. You know. It's like it's Especially I, with a, a seven-year-old, you know, sitting yeah, there. No kidding. Well, <laughs> your kid seems like a warrior. I'll get into some of the kids stuff soon because I always, you know, I love to see that. I, you know, you love to see the next generation coming up or, you know, the, the people who get their kids outdoors. Um, that's a whole topic in and of itself. But, you know, it, as soon as we start talking about inflatable boats and sharks, I mean, everybody's first stop is going to be, you know, you have to establish the safety parameters of this kind of vessel first, you know, because yeah. people like me are going to wonder what happens. So, you know, then I start wondering if you, you know, what, what, I mean, how, what is the worst, what's the worst situation you've really, have you had any kind of scary ones out there in that thing? Uh, so the worst one was that Mako because I lost the whole chamber. I lost all the pressure in that one chamber. Yeah. I was able to fix it after, but yeah, it was a rear chamber. It supports the transom. So, you know, 
it was a little wonky coming in and we had a good three foot swell with a little bit of wind. So <laughs> but it would come up behind us and it never actually came over the transom, but got a little close. And I was like, man, this is a little sketchy for me. I can only imagine how my son feels right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes they don't, some, sometimes their panic is just dictated by your energy. He may have not even known that there was a real, you know, uh, no, he did. He was telling me that, you know, he's never coming out again. The same thing I explained to you with the chambers and stuff. I had to explain to him and I was like, look, we're, we still got power. We're still going. And we literally have like a mile until we're in the Harbor. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I guess that's what I'm wondering. Like, uh, can you see land from where you're at in this scenario? Like, or are you just yeah. out in the blue? Yeah. In that scenario, I could, uh, sometimes I can't though really yeah. have no business going to places like the 209. We have a lot of banks and they're, uh, labeled by how deep they are. So like the 209 is 209 fathoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And you'll hear people talk about the 181, the 182, the 312, and it's all dictated on how deep that area is. And they're usually little ridges and seamounts. And uh, so I really have no business being out at the the 209 or the 312. I've been in the 181, which is about 31 miles out. Mm. Uh, you can't see land. It's between... Oceanside and San Clemente Island, and no matter which way you look, you can't see either of them. Yeah, and I mean, on your coast, you know, I live on the Gulf side of Florida, so it's like you know, we're not used to being anywhere near deep, whatever you want to consider deep water within our coastline. You I mean you got to make these long runs to really get out there? But like oh, where you're at in California, how far do you have to go anyway before you're able to start catching? I mean, I've seen you with what are they, yellowfin, some kind of tuna. I don't know my so, tuna species. Uh, a couple bluefin tuna. Oh, jeez. And mahi, um, yellowtail. I haven't got any big yellowtail yet, which was weird because when I fish in a kayak, it was like yellowtail all the time up to 35 pounds. And hmm. I get this inflatable where I can run out to kelps and go offshore. And it's like all the yellowtail are rats, <laughs> little <laughs> guys. But I mean, how far do you really have to go anyway before you're in, say, I don't know, 100 feet of water? Oh, 100 feet of water, a mile. Oh, nice. Okay. Sheesh. Yeah, we have we have little marker buoys. We have a a NOAA buoy that is three between three and a half and four miles outside the harbor, yeah. and it sits in nine hundred feet of water, and it's right there on the drop off. And then you go another mile, and you're in sixteen hundred feet of water. Holy cow! So, I mean, in in that scenario, it sort of makes sense to have the small watercraft because, again, I'm still trying to calculate sort of the pros and cons of something like that obviously is like if you're looking for like a budget thing you're operating on a budget or you know you want to save more money to go towards other things you look at options um you know like that but like you mentioned that you can take this boat and fold it up and throw it in the back of your car what like how long is that process i mean is this like i'm thinking of like packing yeah tear down and set up i'm like is that is that like a long like is it labor intensive or, or is it pretty much, you know, you hook it up to a machine and it inflates and it's, it's a, you know, a quick process at the, yeah, and, and where are you launching? Are you just, you know, <laughs> carrying it down to the beach or are you actually going to a, 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 like a paved ramp or what? So you can, there's some places, California is not like the Gulf coast. I've been, I lived in Florida, uh, near Destin for a year. And you could launch your kayak and you could roll an inflatable boat with a little motor down the beach and launch anywhere. Nobody Mm -hmm. cared. Here in San Diego, they'll ticket you within five seconds of 
getting on the beach with a motor. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of places like La Jolla and then Mission Bay, which is down in San Diego. You can okay. launch from pretty much all the little islands and uh, parkways there. But up here in Oceanside, where I fish 99% of the time, uh, I would launch on base because I'm here on base on Camp Pendleton. And uh, we have an LZ with a little boat ramp, a landing zone with a, a boat ramp. So I would just back down there, pull the boat out, inflate it, and then launch. Yeah. And then, like, is this a one-person job? I mean, how much does, like, the dry weight on that thing, like, you know, how much does a 17-foot, you know, folded-up inflatable boat weigh? So, not not the motor, just just the just the boat. My kaboat with the inflatable floor was right around 100 pounds. And okay, so that's that's less than that's less than some of the kayaks out out there. So yeah, yeah, super easy. Um, and then I would put a ratchet strap around it to really compress it, so then it was just like the size of a small barrel, and you throw it in the back of the truck or the car. Yeah, and then uh, like okay, and then like what is its capacity for weight, like carrying wise? Because I mean, I'm wondering like how much are you throwing a lot of gear into this thing? You're obviously putting a I don't know what, what size motor that you said you're using, but like how much weight can it hold? The Kabot could hold a thousand pounds, which oh, blew everything out of the water when it yeah. came to kayaks and small skiffs. Cause some of the 14 foot aluminum skiffs are rated to like 600 pounds. Yeah. And you put a hundred pound motor on there, six gallons of gas. I almost weigh 300 pounds. It doesn't look like it, but you know, I'm six, seven and pushing 300. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, yeah. Put some ice and bait on there and you know you don't have any room left for fish well, i hope so. you got enough room for your legs but yeah and you know i've seen your photos where you got like a mako shark in your lap or you got a swordfish in your lap <laughs> yeah. so i'm just like you know geez um but that's nuts but i want to know more about too like the fishery you know the boat is a fascinating piece of equipment um you've obviously been able to do a lot with just that and the one thing i noticed that you do with your boat is you have these like little silhouettes that you've like of the fish. Oh yeah. Are is it like, you know, are those fish species that you've caught? And you're like, oh, I've earned the silhouette of every yeah, fish I like conquer, little, I'm gonna like a little kill tag on a uh on a jet almost. Yeah, that's awesome. But I had the silhouette for the Mahi, the Mako, and the tuna. And then uh I meant to make one for the swordfish, but I never got around to it. But yeah, yeah just that's... something fun to put on there, you know. That's pretty cool. And now, is there like a maintenance type of program you have to go through with like the the material of it? Can it not like dry rot or does it like, I'd be worried. I don't know if you're folding it up, but it's like, I would think you'd have to like condition it if it's sitting out in the sun, if it's getting salt water and then it's drying out and it's sitting yeah, in the sun. So and is it like the number, you, the yeah, number one filler of PVC? Uh, and you'll see boats that are made. The two most common is uh, Hypalon and PVC. And mm -hmm. when you get in the Hypalon, you're looking at almost three times the cost. So a $1,500 boat is going to run you about $5,000, four to $5,000 that's made of Hypalon. But the PVC boats, number one killer PVC is UV. And yeah, it'll make it brittle. I have, I forget what it's called. Uh, I can get back to you on that, but it's just a spray. It's like a sunscreen for PVC. I was about to say, it's like, a, what is it, like suntan lotion for a boat? Yeah, for <laughs> Pretty much spray it on there, wipe it on once a month, and uh, yeah, it protects it from the UV rays. That's pretty so, cool. But uh, yeah. as far as maintenance, just wash it down, let it dry. Don't let it get anything in there because sometimes you get 
fish guts or a little bit of blood, bloody water left in there, and it'll smell after a week. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta rinse it out. And then regular motor maintenance. Just keep up on your motor, and that thing will take care of you forever. Yeah. And now the fishing itself is, you know, obviously that's the one I really want to get into because you're catching, you know, I guess you call them big game. You're catching the, these big fish. You know, like I said, you're not going out there to catch and I'm sure from time to time you go out there to get, I don't know, food to get bait, just to play with small right. fish. But a lot of, a lot of what you're chasing is at least a lot of what I've seen on your page is, you know, obviously the Mako's thresher sharks. That's another really cool one that I've seen that you're doing the tuna, the Mahi. Uh, just, I don't know, man, give me the rundown on the fishery that you're, that you're living on. Like what are some of the kind of species that are close to home or your typical targets that you're going after how you're so, chasing them? Cause I don't know what I'm, I don't really know how to envision. I saw this post you recently put, it was like this rig where you were like, there was like a flag out behind the boat. I'm like, this is a whole style of fishing. I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know if you're trolling. I didn't know what the f- flag behind the boat was. <laughs> So like, how okay. are you approaching some of these species out there out of this thing? So inshore, we'll just start from, from inshore, just, uh, just outside the breakers. We have yellowtail, white sea bass, halibut. Uh, we have the, our bass, the smaller bass. So we have the sand bass, calico bass, and spotted bay bass. Uh, the smaller bass you target just like you do freshwater bass. Um, you use plastics, grubs, jigs. Some people will throw surface iron stuff when they're boiling on bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to yellowtail, you need 40, 50 pound setups for those. And usually we use a dropper loop or a uh, like a drop shot rig. It's just heavy duty drop shot rig with a ring hook. Put live squid or live mackerel and drift it over you know, the area that they're in. They can be anywhere from 20 to 120 feet. Uh, the white sea bass, that's everybody's like, bucket list fish out here especially now it seems like they're harder to catch than they were 15 years ago uh you just target those in the kelp line they're seasonal they come in real thick in the spring and they start their breeding and they'll be right up there in the kelp and you use 30 to 40 pound setups uh braided line to a short mono or floral leader and one of my favorite things to do is get a heavy glow jig just any kind of metal jig with a single hook on it and then hook a live mackerel on there and drift it outside or over top of submerged kelp. And it's like candy to them. They'll come out and they'll eat that. And then you got to fight them to keep them out of the kelp. I'm looking at this on Google and Mm -hmm. it looks like a gigantic sea trout. Is Is this a, uh, (laughs) Oh my gosh. How big do these things get? They get upwards of 60 pounds. Um, there's been some landed in the 90 pound range. I don't know if they've broken a hundred, but is the this majority... the same thing? I don't know if you can see that. Uh, oh, yeah. It's kind of, uh, it. it's crappy quality from there. Yeah. I can see the outline. Uh, yeah. That's Jeez. a white sea bass. So that's, it looks fake. It look, literally looks like <laughs> if you took a speckled sea trout or like a sea trout and just like scaled it up or like, <laughs> like copy and pasted it like, like a fake thing. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. And we also have orange mouth corvina. If you look those up, they're smaller than white sea bass, but they look very similar. Okay. And those actually look a lot like a speckled trout. Probably in the same. I guess they're probably all in the same family. What are they? Some type of... uh... They're a croaker. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. There's another giant one. 
That's interesting. I got to look those up more later. That's crazy. <laughs> now, yeah, and then you mentioned the halibut. Now, are you are y'all getting the same caliber of halibut that you see up there in Alaska, where they're like nine no. feet long? And no, so those are Pacific halibut. Uh, okay, uh, so we have California halibut, which I was reading into those for some reason. I went down a rabbit hole last week reading about California halibut, and they're more related to the starry flounder and the fluke on the east coast. So they. They get upwards of 40 pounds, but the majority okay. you're going to see is anywhere from 20 to 30 inches in that two to 10 pound range. Um, and we fish them just like you fish fluke and flounder, uh, small plastics on the bottom or jerk baits. Uh, a lot of guys will use live bait on a three-way rig or a Carolina rig. And then you make a trap rig, put a small J hook through the nose and then four inches back for a little treble hook you know, in the back of the fish. So when they eat it, almost like a king rig. But um, yeah, the, the thing that I'm wondering, like in a boat like that is, you know, are you running like different kinds of electronics, like map systems? Do you have like, I don't know, you know, like what tools do you have at your resource to find these fish to make sure you're over any type of structure? I guess if you're on kelp beds, you probably see them. I don't know if they come all the way to the surface or not. Yeah, you can usually see the kelp on the surface, but early season, um, which right now is early season because the kelp grows when the when the water is cooler. And then when the water warms up, warm water is bad for kelp. It, it makes it die and it just kind of melts away. It sucks. We had some really good kelp bores here 10 to 15 years ago, and they slowly started to diminish the further north you go. So up in central California, they still have really heavy kelp beds and ours are, seems like, they're on the downfall, but then every once in a while, you'll just notice that like the barn kelp up north just flourishes and it pops up. And you're like, oh, wow, it's coming back. And then by August, you know, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a cycle. Um, hopefully we go back to our cooler waters and we get the, those kelp beds back the way they were. Um, we can also look forward to warmer water and be getting all kinds of exotics. You know, we've had bonefish up here. We have residential bonefish in san diego harbor okay that's interesting we've had triple tail caught as far north as san clemente which is south orange county so just yeah. outside of san diego um i think back a couple of years ago there was a, a rooster fish caught down the strand which is between um san diego well it's in san diego but it's between mm -hmm. san diego bay and the border of mexico so there's just there's a lot of things that could just come our way that we're not used to, but then there's a lot of things that are going away. Yeah. Well, tell me some about you know again the I think the shark one is of of major interest to me, <laughs> and I don't know you know you look at especially mako sharks where like the videos of them are just so crazy they're yeah. like they start jumping and stuff, but it's uh you know I don't know man tell me about like the experience of chasing though like what is the approach for for i mean are you just putting out you know bloody chunks of meat and hoping that they're coming by or like what is the telltale signs of an air like where where are you searching for make or or are they bycatch i don't even know if this is something you're intentionally no, so trying to catch can, uh i have caught them as bycatch um accidentally you know catch one on a troll like happened before or yeah. you have a live mackerel or sardine out on a patty and a mako just inhales it but uh they start showing up when the water gets about 64 degrees. Okay. So they'll come in around May. Um, 
and then they stick out stick here through the whole summer the ones between may and july seem to be a lot bigger those you know 800 to a thousand pound fish that they're coming in there i don't know if they're breeding or dropping pups but we we do end up with a lot of smaller ones after they disappear uh but they come in and I definitely don't want to mess with those. <laughs> yeah. No I mean, like one bite and I'm probably losing all the chambers. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. It's like, you, you got to know your boundaries. I mean, surely you're not, you know, intentionally wanting to go that far with it. But at the same time, like, what are you using? Like, are you using meat for bait? Like, are you using, yeah. I mean, you can't so, really control uh, the size of the fish that grabs that. Can you? You can. And that's what I started doing is I have a milk crate with pool noodle around the top. So it floats. And then just put all my chum in there, all my fish scraps, and okay. put that in there, and then have a hundred feet of rope on that, so it drifts away from the boat. And I can see the sharks come in and circle it, and they even come up and they try to bite it. And you can judge how big they are. You know, <laughs> oh, that is awesome! It's all fun and games until you have an eight foot mako shark, you know, biting at your chum, and you have to get that chum back to your boat because you yeah. want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to just cut it loose and be like, well, yep, I'm leaving that one behind. Yeah. Oh, man. So, okay, so this is more like sight fishing, which makes sense because, you know, I, you hear about, like, the people that are out there, like, fly fishing for them and lure fishing for them. Mm-hmm. They do the Pre- same thing. I was about to say, presumably, they're doing the same thing, and then you can kind of pick your targets. Now, is it usually one solitary fish, or do you get, like, a group of them come through? Usually one, maybe two. Yeah. Um, I've had it where the smaller babies, the little tiny two footers to about four foot, like three or four of them will show up. And, you know, there's always that one that wants to hang out at the boat. And you're like, man, if you just, if he turns and bites <laughs> the bottom of the boat, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I first got it, uh, Mako was high on the list. And then after, you know, juggling one on the side of the boat and having it, it was small. It was about three foot. And all it did was open its mouth and turn sideways. And one of its little teeth, punctured the side of the boat and i was able to patch it right there within a couple seconds but you know one of those little guys thought i had him under control and he just twisted a little bit and i had a hole so between that and then the one that actually put a hole in the back i'm i i can't i'm just i'm trying to envision a a a practice here that would be best for how to land one you know what i mean like i see them in in the boat with you i mean you pull it up alongside there at some point you got to what are you doing? Like putting a rope around the like tail oh, rope, and I'm like, yeah, it would be a tail rope. I think um, the idea that I came up with in my head was a harpoon and a buoy. So when you get them next to the boat, you can plane it, get them within four to five feet, stick them with a dart, and then throw the buoy over, and then they're on the buoy, and they're going to fight that. Mm, and then you okay. can, you know, get them back, and then uh, tail rope them, and then do what you have to do. But there's always that chance because we've had makos. Uh, my buddy Ed, I went out with him in the kayaks a couple of years ago and we got one just over six foot and had it dragging backwards and then had it on the kayak. It took us like two hours to get home. Um, had to do a surf landing and like a four foot swell and sent this thing through the surf, got it up on the beach and it was still alive, you know, two and a half hours after being caught and bled out. So I thought, cause we sliced the gills, so it'd bleed out. Yeah, and it was still kicking and wanting to thrash on the beach. So, not really a fish you want to mess with in the inflatable, you know. But you can tell there's some people out there you can tell them that a hundred times they're still going to go do it, just yeah. like me. <laughs> and I'm thinking like I would definitely want to like dispatch it at the side of the boat, like you know, uh, that's kind of common sense. You're not going to want to pull the live thing in, 
But then, you know, you see these videos where they're jumping and they're like going, just going nuts. Like how much oh, they're jumping. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so then obviously you're like, oh, you know, what's to stop them from jumping like into the boat? Or is that kind of like an extreme circumstance, like a rare no, thing? It's actually pretty common. Um, they'll jump right next to the boat or even in the boat and yeah. they move so fast. Your line will be pointed one direction and the shark will be all the way on your right. A hundred yeah. yards out <laughs> doing a flip and you're still hooked up. You know, your lines can't even keep up. So you don't know where they're at. Um, yeah, super sketchy. Definitely be dangerous. And are you just all like a like on a sleigh ride on that thing or is it is it you know i'm wondering what kind of drag a boat like that has on it like can a can is the fish just pulling you all over the place or are yeah, you are you able the, to control them with about 12 pounds of drag it might slip a little bit but the boat's just cruising you know it, it's pulling yeah. uh, the only way i can actually put drag on it is if i fight it off the back with the motor and gear yeah or if it's straight up and down because they're not gonna you know pull the boat down so i can put more pressure on them yeah because and then I see these photos. I especially saw the one with your son that had one, and you're bring you're bringing them home, like you're harvesting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you doing? Like, just I mean, how are you preparing? You're eating the makos, right? Like, what is the? So I've only I've only taken two home. Caught I caught five or six. I don't out of the inflatable itself. Um, all under six feet. But we took two home. One was just over three foot, and then. Cause he swallowed a J hook and it was in his throat and his gills and yeah, probably would have survived with how hardy these things are. I've seen them cut open. They have like a Marlin bill stuck in their throat, but, uh, oh. yeah, I didn't feel, I didn't feel good about releasing him. So took him home. And then the one that my son caught that we had to deal where it popped the boat, but yeah, Mako is actually really good. Um, you can stake it. I like filleting them. So I get better chunks out of it and don't nice. have to cut okay. the bone out of the middle, but just fillet it. And all you have left is the spine throw that away and uh, make everything from ceviche to, you know, breaded shark chunks. Like kind of, kind of like you do with catfish, just little yeah. catfish chunks. Yeah. Do shark chunks or you can make little fillets and bake it or fry it. It's all good. It, you can't mess it up. Right. Now, have you had any encounters with their uh, larger cousins? I know it's like, you know, Southern California area is kind of like white shark Perfect. territory. Yeah. Yeah, there's great. If you're if you're out on the water here in San Diego, there's a great white within a mile of you. Jeez. At least inshore. And people people think about going offshore and they're worried about the great whites, but it's inshore. You know, okay. right there from the beach to like two miles out in five feet of water, out to about a hundred feet of water. Um there's just so many great whites from six foot to ten feet long. And they'll come check you out. If you have a fish on the side of the boat, they'll come by and investigate it. We've been yeah. out there fishing for threshers. And uh, my buddy Dale likes to have a little chum pot going. And not to attract the threshers themselves, but to attract the mackerel, which in turn attracts the threshers. Okay. So you have a little chum buddy there, put a couple macks in there and you know shake it up every 10 minutes or so just to keep the mackerel interested. And it keeps our live bait right there because um, we can just constantly catch them and swap out live baits. But yeah. we were out one time and he had my dad on his boat and they were hooked up to a big thresher. It was 12 feet long, tip to tip. So probably like 150 pounds. Because, um, you know, you measure the tail too and the tail is the same length as the body. So they're hooked up and I see this other fin and it's coming from one direction. As I'm taking pictures of them on the boat, <laughs> and it was a little little great white, about seven feet long. And he was going over to see what they were doing, you know? But 
they're out there. We, uh, we fish threshers off the beach, which that's a whole nother story, a whole nother mm-hmm. way of targeting them. But, uh, just put a little mackerel on a float and a whole mackerel and, you know, 50% of the time a white shark will come by and take it. Jeez. It's crazy that it's that common. It's like, it's just one of those like novelty fish though, that it's like, you know, it stimulates the mind and there's, there's so much folklore behind it. But then every time I talk to the guys that are sort of local to where they're at, like, Oh yeah, them damn things are everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's like, sheesh, how crazy. But uh, yeah, they've made a huge comeback. They uh, used to have gill nets all over the beaches and stuff. So they can't uh, fish gill nets within three miles of the beach, which pretty much eliminates all those great whites and the white sea bass and stuff. Um, so they're just flourishing. They're not being caught by catch by anybody. You can't yeah. target them. Uh, some people do target them low key, but even if they do, they can't harvest them. So it's right. not like dead in their population. Yeah. Well, that's just kind of the nature of shark fishing. It's like you can always say it's an accident. You, surely there's people. But, um, yeah, the th- the thresher sharks are almost more interesting to me than that because it's like such a cool-looking fish. Is that, I mean, what is the the pursuit of them? Is it pretty much a similar game to what you're doing for the Makos where you're putting out chum and you said you're no. waiting on the mackerel to come? So it's something different. So uh, I'll go I'll go super shallow, 50 feet to all the way into like 20 feet off the surf and uh just find bait balls and catch a couple live mackerel and put one out on a float and let it let it go behind the boat about you know 200 feet and then put a live one out free line just free free spool it with a clicker on and then drift drift from 50 feet towards the shore and then just keep covering you know that area and certain times of the year there's so many you can hook 12 you know, you get out there at 9 a.m., you can hook 12 before noon. Golly. Uh, and then there's some, you know, sometimes you're out there and you, you can't even buy a bite. But yeah, yeah. certain times of the year, they're they're in there so thick, you can't keep them off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fishing, I guess. Yeah, because that's always been like a fascinating species of shark to me. It's obviously the shape, the tail. You know, you wonder why they even have that adaptation i mean is the t- like why would the tail grow like are they using it for something like what is their tail yeah they use it to hunt so they'll actually come up and a lot of people will uh they'll drag rapalas to catch them because they come in and they slap the bait with their tail to stun it okay. and when they do that the rapala has two treble hooks on it it'll actually snag them in the tail You're probably tail hook and well the hell that'd be a you know then then the fight's probably 10 times more grueling yeah but, you uh, drag them in backwards but uh if you get them in the mouth, I use circle hooks, like mm-hmm. an eight-aught circle hook. Um, I actually like the the owner tournament Mutu uh, light wire circle hooks. They're just they're perfect for these fish. And uh, nose hook the mackerel, send it out, and they'll whack it. And you can see them whack it because that mackerel will start making the tip shake real bad. Yeah, and then you'll get a good thump, and then you know. Five seconds later, your drag is screaming because he ate it. And uh, they'll go airborne. They'll jump several times. You know, seeing seeing a 10-foot thresher, which is really five, five and a half foot at the fork, but, you know, an 80-pound mm-hmm. fish in 20 feet of water, just greyhounding, you know, looking like <laughs> a marlin. It's it's super cool. <laughs> and uh, you fish them on, you can fish them as light as 20, but I like fishing 40. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're still fighting them for 10 minutes or so. Yeah. And they're like, I mean, 
they seem like a shark that's got like a smaller mouth. I didn't know what they're like. Yeah. They're probably a less, maybe I'm wrong, but they're probably less of a hazard to the boat for that reason. But it's like, you know, yeah. I look at it, I look, I look at how small their mouth is. What, I mean, are their teeth still typical shark teeth or is this more like a, uh, what well, every, every shark has different, different teeth. Like the, the Makos have those really long needle-like mm-hmm. teeth for, you know, catching fish and shredding them. And they got the, yeah. the great whites that have the big triangular giant sawing teeth for, you know, eating mammals. And these guys, their teeth, it's almost like uh their little handsaw. And you have like, you have the wood, uh, the wood blade on it. And then you have the metal blade. Like sometimes their teeth aren't even as big as the the teeth on a metal or a, a wood blade. Yeah. So they're just, they're stunning little fish, mackerel and sardines and chowing down on them. They're not really a hazard. I wouldn't, I wouldn't lip grip it like a bass, but well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've watched, I remember there used to be this shark fishing show on TV and I cannot remember what it was called for the life of me. They seem like they were constantly targeting threshers and there's these hilarious videos of them boat side where the tail's coming up and smacking the hell out oh, of the yeah. anglers. Yeah. And it's like, they're, it's like they're turning the tail and using it as a weapon. I don't know if I can remember, you know, I can't even tell if it's intentional or it's just like, you know, you get in the way of this and when it's whipping it around, you know, typically when you think of a shark presenting some kind of danger, it's like, Oh, you're worried about him getting biting you. You got to worry about this thing, bitch slapping you with its tail. Yeah, I've but, uh, definitely been hit in the face. I've had like a little, <laughs> little raft or a red spot on the cheek after yeah. getting slapped around. Um, <laughs> some people say they've been hit, and you know, like it dazed them a little bit and they had to let go of the fish. But yeah, I can believe common, it. I mean, most common way to land them is, you know, don't use a gaff, just reach down, grab that long tail, and mm-hmm. you get their tail out of the water and, you know, they're helpless. Yeah. So you can, you can manipulate and you get a hook out or you just put a tail rope on them and then, you know, take care of them and take them home. Yeah. Well, I'm sure by now you probably have a system in place to keep, you know, keep the blatant hazards from happening or, you know, preventative measures to keep the fish from popping the boat. And then the other target that you have that is like, you know, a pokey shaped fish yeah. <laughs> is them is those uh, uh, swordfish. And now is that the only kind of billfish y'all have over there that you're chasing, at least in your home waters? Is, no, actually, uh, we have uh, we have a lot of striped marlin. Okay, so we get striped marlin. I I've had two come up because I'll troll when I'm offshore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll cruise at like eight to ten miles an hour, and have two either a daisy chain or just a little plunger out back. Um, one just outside the whitewash, and then one further back, uh, well outside the whitewash. And I'm not setting it up like you know marlin boats where they're in the wake and plunging and because that, that's just too much work i'm constantly turning around just put one you know 100 feet the other one 200 feet and uh last year i had two come up i had one come up and just chase a little green daisy chain that i had right there mm-hmm. in the whitewash and i noticed him and then i tried to uh you know tease him a little bit and then he never came back up <laughs> and then and then i had one that actually hit a little pink uh williamson plunger and it hit it and dragged scream for like now three seconds. I looked back and he was jumping and then he was off and never saw him again. Nah. So that's, that's my experience with striped marlin in Southern California. <laughs> you got to get, take some redemption trips out there. That'd be legit to see you pull one of those things up. Uh, but you know, like now the shark thing's a little bit more 
you know, you, you can drift, like you said, the, the baskets that have meat in, like you can bring the fish to you, but like, you know, when I think of something like a billfish or especially the swordfish, which is a weird fish, the fact that they live so deep, but then they'll come straight to the surface. It's like, you know, yeah. now, how, now how are you finding those? You just, so there's deep dropping or several, yeah, we have several canyons. Um, I actually talked to guys, a couple captains in Louisiana early last year when I was getting into trying to target them and they were telling me like they look at the the canyons the topography and stuff and figure out where the currents come in it would most likely build up like make an upwelling or just attract bait because there's there's microplankton down there there's little fish that live down there and they're all going to be congregated somewhere to feed and Mm -hmm. then the squid come in they feed on those and then the uh the swordfish come in and they feed on everything from the lancet fish to the the squid. So you look for those areas and obviously the predators are going to be there too. Uh, and I showed them screenshots of the, the underwater maps that we have out here. And they were like, Oh, this would be easy. And everyone, there was three guys I talked to and all three of them highlighted three different spots. And they were like, this is where I'd start. So that's where I started. Um, then once you're out there, I have a fish finder. It's super basic. It's a Garmin 64 CV. So yeah. it's not the sky, side scan. It's the, the clear view with the, the lower frequency chirp. So I can see the bottom. I can see bottom about 1,800 feet, but there's really no definition. I can't tell you if it's hard bottom, if there's rockfish down there, anything like that. But anywhere from 1,000 feet to 600 feet, I can see the, the DSL which is a deep scatter layer and about about 600 to 650 feet is where you lose all light. So then it becomes pitch black. And then between there and about 800 to a thousand feet, all those microorganisms start building up and you have the bait fish that go in there and the squid and you can see a line and it'll be, usually it's like a a hazy blue line, but then sometimes it'll, it'll look like a hard line and there's just a bunch of stuff there. And no matter if it's, 1500 feet deep or 2000 feet deep uh like putting my bait anywhere from 150 to 300 feet below that line because when i put it in the line it seems like it's torn up by squid i've tried Uh, dropping it right there in that dsl and i'm like put the bait right there it's got to get eaten but it'll you'll see the rod tip load up and it'll just hang there and then it'll go go slack and then it'll load up again and hang there and it looks like a bite but what it is it's other squid latching onto your bait and just chewing the heck out of it oh gosh <laughs> uh, get it below that have a couple lights on there and you s- set up the lights the little uh diamond lights they're i use the Lindgren pitman ones because they they last you know a couple trips the the 99 cent ones off of amazon and ebay those things die before they even come up after you know one day of fishing yeah <laughs> so uh i like to set up two lights um, I've tried up to four of the little tiny ones spaced out 10 feet on the on the leader. And it's kind of like a trolling spread. You know, you have your big bait and then you have your little teasers, which are the, the lights to get their attention. Come in, look at the lights, and then they see the bait and they eat the bait. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then a big light, one of the big deep drop lights from Linear Pittman. I'll put it a couple feet from the weight, which is about 100 feet from the bait. Um but yeah, it's just about looking for structure. Uh, also look at chloro breaks, the chlorophyll, and also temp breaks. So, you know, if 
there's a temperature break and a chloro break and it's right around that structure that you know i, I know i want to hit and obviously that's where i'm going to go or try to find something super close to that and start there so you're just dropping down where you know the food is and it's just kind of like an assumption that you know hey, well this is where the bait's at so yeah. the fish have to be following the bait because you, you know you're not seeing like a blip on the uh, no no some people have their electronics set up <laughs> to where they can actually mark a fish or you know tell mm-hmm. if there's a school of fish at 600 feet you know bait fish or if it's you know plankton or whatever um no i just see fuzzy haze on my screen and i'm like well that looks like a little bit of life down there let's try it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then like when something pulls and you know it's a fish i mean is it you know is it a fair assumption that it's a swordfish or are there other species down there like that no. deep um, so well there's big eye thresher and those are pretty common i haven't caught one yet i think i hooked one because it was acting like a shark so the uh the swordfish when they get hooked and they have that weight down there it mm-hmm. feels the pressure of the weight pulling against it so they swim to the surface to yeah. try to get away from that you know what's pulling on them so that weight actually works towards your advantage as the angler because uh, they won't dive back down with that weight still on there the sharks they don't seem to care they they eat it and then they stay down and you know i've seen guys fight these big eye thresher for two hours yeah <laughs> and they just it takes them forever just to get above a thousand feet you know yeah there's also black cod which they're they're smaller they're in the three to ten pound range um and guys that will drop down and fish the bottom you know they'll drop down hit the bottom and then reel up 100 feet so they're just off the bottom in 1500 feet of water and the black cod will eat their bait so i got not always swordfish but you're hoping for one (laughs) yeah well i guess so like then the fight i would think you're just reeling slack the whole time i mean are they rocketing to the surface and it's just like they do they uh they come up pretty quick the one that i landed last year um i actually thought it was a shark at first because it was hanging down it was down for almost 10 minutes yeah and then and then it started coming up and i couldn't keep up with it and i knew it was coming up because you know i didn't the line was scoping out so it wasn't like it just went slack and i was broke off uh what i did to counteract that was you know turn on the motor and then put it in gear and drove away from the fish okay that yeah way, that way that slack would come out <clears throat> and i would be tight when it came to the surface rather than you know it come up and jump and tangle up the leader and all that yeah so it ended up working out really well i got you that's great you know it, the swordfish again that one's always always interesting to me because you know i guess other fish can't go from deep ocean to the surface without their eyeballs exploding out of their skulls yeah. so it's like you see these fish that are in these crazy depths way down there in like dark ocean. But then I've also seen videos where people are like harpooning them because they're swimming across the surface. Like, mm-hmm. are you seeing them doing that kind of behavior too? Where you, you're, I mean, that, that yeah. side of it's crazy to me where they're like finning at last the surface. Year, last year was crazy. Um, 2022 was crazy. Cause I think alone I saw six or seven swordfish swimming on the surface. Anywhere from like a hundred pounder to one that looked twice as big as the one that I caught myself. You know, so it was probably around 500 pounds. Uh, 
this year, not so much. I saw one early season and it was circling around a, a kelp patty early in the morning. And I went to go investigate and see if I could throw a bait at it. And it, it swam down, sank out, never saw it. Yeah. But uh, there's a huge fishery for them out here, commercial harpoon fishery. And they'll have a spotter plane and they have these big, you know, 45, 60 foot boats with a huge uh, plank on the front. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they call it a plank or a boom, but it's got that plank on the front that sticks out another 20 feet. And they have a, you know, a really tall tuna tower with guys up there with their stabilized binoculars. And some of them even have a spotter plane. So they'll be out there doing, you know, figure eights and circles in the area. And the spotter plane will look for them and call them in. And then they have a guy run out there. And uh, the idea of that boom is the fish doesn't notice the boat until it's too late. So the, the boom is over the fish and the guy is sticking him with a dart before mm-hmm. it even hears the boat. It seems like and, so much work. Like you'd think there's way easier way. You got to pay the fuel expenses of somebody flying around in a plane. Like, oh, yeah. geez. I just, I think of all the logistics and the work that goes into. Well, surely, uh, surely that drives the price up on the swordfish, yeah. you know, you coming to your dinner plate. <laughs> Bear flag. They have a couple <laughs> seafood shops and they have one of the bigger um, swordfish boats besides Pilakia and swordfish goes for $35 a pound. So you get a 200, 300 pound fish, you get a couple of them a day making quite a bit of money. I don't know if it's, you know, breaking even or they're making bank on it. That's what I think is at first you're like, wow, you could probably make so much money on doing that. But then you realize how much it probably costs just to go and do that. So I was like, okay, well, $1,500 on fuel and (laughs) everything else. (laughs) Oh, geez. Well, that's awesome. And then, you know, anyway, you know, yeah, I guess the other side of that, just to circle back, you know, we kind of touched on a little bit earlier. What I like seeing is like you're taking your son out there, which, you know, has he shaken off the the jitters of the the scary situation? So how's he enjoying all this? Are you, is he just along for the ride or are you putting him to work out there? Like, how's that? when, When he's with me, I'm guiding him. You know, I'm I'm his guide for the day, and I'm trying nice. to get him finished. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, he wants to go catch a tuna. It's one of the big things. He wants to get his own tuna. And it seems like every time I have a chance in a good weather window to get him out there and go look for tuna, just something something goes wrong. Yeah. You know, like, like the, the last time the water temperature dropped four degrees overnight, and we went out there, and it was just, it was like a desert. There was nothing on the patties. Um, I was seeing tuna blowing up three miles outside of the harbor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were working those areas at first and didn't see anything, no bait or anything. And then it, it's hard because he sees me, you know, getting out after work for an hour and a half and coming back with a couple fish. And then I take him out for a whole day on a Saturday and we get skunked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, so there's other things. Um, How old is he? Bait. He turns nine. And okay, yeah. So our kids are similar age. Um, you know, that's that's such an interesting age. You know, I've got a daughter, but um, you know, it's like you want to take your kids fishing, but there's also like 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 the your son might be different, but it's like, you know, you you have to make it like an engaging process, especially on a boat, it's even harder. Like I can take my kids to like the beach and Mm -hmm. if, if the fish aren't biting. You know, they're hey, the they yeah. they're at the beach. You know what I mean? They can swim. They can play in the sand. They can 
look for shells in a boat. It's like you're confined. You know, kids don't always do well when they're forced to sit still. So, yeah. you know, you wonder, I mean, at the very least, I imagine y'all are probably seeing some kind of wildlife. I think I saw your one of your oh, posts yeah. and he's like, he's all jazzed up over seeing some dolphins or something. Yeah, so, we see dolphins, whales, giant whales, bullets, giant sunfish. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard because I'm in the mentality and I've been fishing. So I've been fishing my whole life. So yeah. I'm okay with going out there and spending six to eight hours, even 12 hours chasing a fish and not getting it. It sucks, but I know that that's, you know, the way of life. But the whale watching. <laughs> take, yeah, take him out. And I just got to, I got to remember that he just wants to fish. He wants to yeah. catch something. So we can go to the the local artificial reef and catch small bass and, you know, catch undersized halibut. And he's going to have fun. So yeah. Got to yeah. reel back a little bit, take a couple steps back and think about it. And be like, all right, this is a day for him. I don't know how much you'd want like a nine-year-old. I'm sure, well, it, maybe it maybe it works out fine, but it's like, you know, a, a nine-year-old, you know, ties into a 150-pound tuna. I'm waiting might, for it. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I'm wondering like, oh, are they going to be able to handle it? But, you know, maybe so. But, uh, yeah, a lot of times it's more about numbers, action. If there are no fish, if a whale came up, my kids would go nuts. Yeah. I would be, I'd get worried about it. You know, you see those videos, at least on, uh, I guess, you know, out there where you live, you probably find those like big bait fields where birds are diving, tunas yep. are cr- crashing them. But then you see those videos where like, uh, what do they do? They like, they make like a, uh, ring of bubbles. Oh yeah. Uh, I haven't seen them do that. We'd have, we have, uh, fin whales and, mink whales i think are the ones that eat the fish no oh, okay and they'll 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 race you to the foamers and the bait you know the tuna are working the bait and yeah. it was just like a month <laughs> and a half ago i had three little whales they were anywhere from 30 to 35 feet and uh they would come up on the bait and crash it and then the tuna would pop up 150 yards away and i'd start going over there and then there's a whale right next to me you know breaching and coming out of the water breathing and he's chasing he's racing me to that uh, foamer where the bait is and I'd get there and set up and then this whale would crash through and I couldn't cast because there's a whale. <laughs> that would make me nervous. Like if I, I'm just thinking like, you know, like most predators or most animals that are like zoned in and keyed in on feeding, it's like nothing else exists, but the food. So yeah. it's like, if I'm out there in a little inflatable boat and all of a sudden the foamers or the bait ball is under me, I'm going to be a little concerned about, you know, the, Forty-foot whale, whale. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are, are they like aware that you're there, like like avoiding seem, you, or will they just knock your ass out of the way to get to the food? They seem pretty aware. Um, I've seen them come up next to boats, just right next to them, and not hit the boat, but scare the, the crap out of the people that are in the boat. Uh, <laughs> so they seem really aware that it's there, yeah, and they know what they're doing. But then you see videos like the people kayaking they're paddling yeah. right in the middle of the, the bubbles and then they get eaten by you know a whale. <laughs> yeah one of those went viral a couple of years ago where it came up and got the guy and the and the you know it spits him out but that could probably still jack you up pretty bad but uh yeah you know. and i imagine it could hurt the whale too which i'm more yeah. worried about you know the whale than the dude the, the guy was being an idiot <laughs> right you get worried about getting in trouble but um yeah that's that's nuts we don't get whales 
well, we might have whales over here. I never see them, but uh, you know, that's that's cool. I would think that that would just be like the highlight of a kid's life. Of course, if you're like raised around that, maybe it's oh, yeah. Man. We had uh, I made a little bait tank when I was using the green cabot. I made a little mm. bait tank for the front, and we went and caught a bunch of mackerel, and we we're throwing mackerel in there. And one of the mackerel spit up a shrimp, and the shrimp was like still half alive. Yeah. So it's at the bottom doing circles, you know, trying to survive. And we found this bait ball and call them bird tornadoes because the birds just, you know, make like a tornado and they're diving. And yeah. dolphins <laughs> popped up and whales came in. And we were following these three humpback whales, you know, staying a couple hundred yards away, but just following them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wasn't interested. He was telling me about the <laughs> yeah. shrimp that was doing, you know, donuts <laughs> in the bottom of the bait tank. <laughs> like, yeah. there's, there's three whales right there. He's like, yeah, I don't care. Oh gosh. That's funny. I've had similar experiences. Like I've taken my kids out when I used to have a boat, we got rid of the boat and we'd take them out on the boat. And we had like this one day, like a group of manatees come up. They're like, you know, a lot of times they just swim off. Like they don't, they don't want anything to do with it. But these manatees are like very engaged with the boat. I mean, they're coming right to the boat. They're like nuzzling my back of the motor, like sticking their head out and looking at us. And I'm like freaking out. Like I'm thinking this is going to like, my daughter, my older daughter was all about it. She was like freaking out about the manatees. My younger daughter, man, she didn't care about that. She's like wanted to play in the live whale with the shiners. I was oh. like, oh my gosh. I'm thinking about, I was looking at that. I was like, if the, when I was a kid, my childhood, I didn't get to do anything like this. And it's like, oh, that's just commonplace to them. But that's pretty funny. That's good for a kid though. Like I've seen your photos, getting your, your kid out there and he's, you're, you know, you're not at the local golf course pond catching. Y'all may do that too, catching little fish. But got this kid out here catching mako sharks and stuff. Like, she's probably shows up at school, got all the brag stories. Oh yeah, you know I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, like, he tells kids like, "I caught a shark," you know, and they're like, "No, you didn't." He's got the photo to prove it. Yeah. Well, are y'all doing anything in? I don't want to say inshore, like inland with that boat. You do as I mean, what's the you know, are you hauling it to any of the local lakes or are you pretty much strictly just doing the, the, the oceanic stuff? Strictly ocean right now. Uh, Not a huge fan of fishing the lakes. And when we do, uh, my dad lives like two hours away from here. It's Mm -hmm. up North and inland a little bit. There's a couple of lakes around there. So we've met up with him and, you know, gone trout fishing and catfish fishing, but I don't take the boat. Just, it's a hassle and you got to pay for the extra muscle sticker and again, launch. And if there's any water in the bottom, they won't let you launch. And Oh, that's right. Yeah. They got that issue going on out there. Well, and you know, I think if you're used to being able to launch and go a mile offshore and catch Makos and swordfish and like all these awesome fish, it probably makes going to the local pond and lake and freshwater a little less <laughs> exciting so yeah it's definitely not as exciting but set too high of a bar but geez that's pretty awesome well what are some of the other species out there that i haven't covered i know you do a lot of the mahi stuff but yeah so last year we had a huge influx of mahi it was the biggest run of mahi i think anybody's seen in our lifetime you couldn't we had mahi piled on little kelp patties and jumping a mile off the Oceanside Pier. You know, they're in oh, 80 or 150 feet of water. And the water temperature stayed above 72 for a couple months. So it was 72, 75 degrees. We had the yellowfin tuna. We had the mahi. They were all right there. Uh, this year has been a little bit different. 
uh, haven't seen nearly as many mahi. But then when you have these half day boats go out and they're bragging about bringing back 720 fish in a day, <laughs> you know, all mahi, you're like, well, we're not going to have any next year. And I think yeah. that's exactly what happened. Ah, uh, uh, geez, it's amazing how people don't realize that. You know, you look out of the ocean, how big it is, especially the Pacific. You're like, oh, I can't make a dent in this population. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, you can. That's um, disappointing. But we have. Let's see what else do we have? We have lobster. Uh, lobster season just started, and I got the hoops and stuff for it. Little conical, rigid hoops, mm-hmm. and you put bait in the bottom, throw it out there. And they crawl in and they're able to crawl out because the top's open. You're not allowed to use an actual enclosed trap. But uh, throw five of them out there around some structure and then go pull them in. And you get everything from a lobster to a stingray in that net. Yeah. And that's uh, pretty so awesome. That, those, that's pretty fun to do. Um, trying to get him into wine to go and do that more. Yeah. Now, these boats, is this like something like, are you like, the only guy out there putting around in one of those, or is it kind of like the kayak community where there's like, you know what I mean? Like where there's, yeah, it's growing. It's actually growing. I've had people, you know, contact me and they're like, Hey, tell me about this boat. And I tell them about it. And then they message me and they're like, I just ordered one. You know, there's probably a dozen dudes out there that I've talked to personally that bought one just because I posted, you know, probably catching a tuna in one. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm like, Hey man, it's like, I know when they're here, I can literally see them from my porch. Not not literally, but I'm like five minutes from the water. Yeah. And word travels fast. So it's like if there was tuna foaming off the weather buoy right now, I could have my boat in the water in 30 minutes and be out there. Uh, but they're like, yeah, like it's just they didn't realize how easy it is to get on the water and how inexpensive it is and just how versatile those boats are. So they're they're buying them up. Uh there's a guy local, his name is uh Seems Josh and he has a scout and they're like my green cabot, but they're a little bit smaller, uh, a little bit more lightweight. I think they come in like 80 pounds and they pack mm-hmm. up smaller and he's been fishing those for like three, three or four years and doing all kinds of stuff up in shore. He's got yellowtail. He loves going after bass. I've tried to get him out there for threshers and we'll do like one drift for threshers and then he takes off and he's fishing bass in the kelp and I'm like, bro, you got to come back. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do this. Uh, and there was a whole community focused around those scouts. And then, uh, then I got the Saturn and started talking to guys. And it seems like a lot of those guys transitioned over to the Saturn, just a little bit more robust of a boat, but it's, it's, growing. It, it, definitely it's, growing. it's definitely an awesome type of thing, especially if you're a guy that just likes, I don't know, man, like uh, just sometimes boats are just, they're too much to deal with. You know what I mean? It's like, there's so many advantages, I guess. For how portable they are, uh, cost efficiency, a lot of stuff. And obviously you can take down big fish in these things. And like, you know, me, I, I don't have a boat. I'm like a canoe fisherman, but I want a boat, but I, I don't want, you know, the headaches that come with it. So like, I'm constantly trying to explore, you know, more budget-friendly options or something like, I'm kind of a grungy guy too. Like I just throw my shit around. It's just how I am by nature. Like my stuff takes a beating. So then I get worried like, ah, you know, would this thing survive me? But I've seen them around. Like in my experience fishing, I had one time where I was alligator gar fishing in the Red River, and I saw this guy, and we were in like a very remote spot. I'd never seen any other human beings out here. And this dude pulled up in his four by four up on this bluff, 
got out and I saw him fiddling around in some kind of big trunk and he pulled out same type of thing, some inflatable boat right there on the river, lowered it down this bluff, like carried the motor down on his shoulder and launched right there. I'm like, Oh my God, like, that's what I need. Yeah. Um, and then I got I think, this. Uh, I think that guy has the YouTube channel. Cause I watched something similar to that. Not too long ago. Oh, well, all I know is somehow <laughs> he found it into my top secret spot and I was like upset about it, but you know, yeah. now that we all think that we own the water, but, um, yeah, and then I you know this guy up in Quebec that fishes for muskie out of one, and it's like same thing. It's like he throws his into the back of his Jeep, and um, you know he he does a lot of road trips. He was just down here in Florida catching Goliath groupers and stuff out of it. I'm like, what an awesome boat! Like, you can go on these road trips. Just he just packs it up, folds it up, throws it in the back of his Jeep. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in a Wrangler, tosses the motor in there, and he can just go. I'm like, oh, man, these things are becoming more and more appealing to me. You know, because I think I always think worst case scenario when I look at a boat like that, I'm thinking like, you know, what will happen to me if I'm not paying attention? And I hit like a, you know, an oyster bed or something. Is it just going to slice well, this thing up? Like, yeah, you, know? you do have to you have to watch out for stuff like that, especially oysters, because they're super sharp. And I mean, yeah. an oyster will leave a gouge in a kayak. Right. Yeah. So, or a fiberglass hole. But yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that stuff's cool. It's just it's definitely a. It's definitely a piece of equipment I'm surprised you don't see more of. I see them all the time on like Facebook Marketplace. I see like weird ones though. Like they, I don't know if they're inflatable. They look like they're hard and they're like being trailered around and they got like a center console in them. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is that thing inflatable or is it like hard and it's just like it? They look like they're made out of like hard plastic or something. Yeah. Like so they're... they have the the ribs, the rigid hole. So they're depending on where you see it on posted or written down, it's either RHIB or RIB, but it's a rigid hole yeah. inflatable boat. And it has the hole, which usually comes up to about the waterline. And then they have the sponsons, which is the inflatable part that's on the side of the boat. So it's, it's a rigid hole, but it's an inflatable boat. And yeah. they're super lightweight. Um, they're good for, you know, tenders for yachts because you can bump up right against the boat. You're not going to scuff the gel coat. You're not going to damage anything. And then you got guys, I don't know his name, but he goes by Limitless Fishing out in uh, Hawaii. And he's uh-huh. out there in a West Marine rib. It's like 10 and a half feet and he's catching marlin on it. Jeez, I'm going to look that guy up. Yeah, definitely recommend looking that guy up. Um, he's out there. He catches Wahoo, giant mahi. Mahi is three times the size of any mahi I've gotten. Uh, Blue marlin, striped marlin. He's just out there killing it. Uh, <laughs> hundred pound yellowfin, and in my opinion, yellowfin. You know, they beat the heck out of bluefin when it comes to fighting. Oh, that's so, interesting. Okay, pound for pound, he's catching yellowfin the same size as my bluefin, and you know, landing them on that thing. So, is this type of boat like a rabbit hole that you're going to stay the course on, or do you have some kind of ambition? Be like, ah, you know, these are great, but. I think I'm uh, eventually upgrade to yeah, I'm definitely gonna keep it around because it's just so versatile and so easy to use. I can get out there and you know go bass fishing, uh lobster hooping, or head offshore to local patties within you know an hour's notice. But I'm getting out of the military next year and I want to start fishing full time. Mm-hmm. Uh been talking to a couple of my buddies that commercial fish and also charter fish. So they're charter captains. Yeah. And one of the ideas that I had was to get a couple of these boats and do basically like guided tours, coastal tours, and provide 
two boats um, plus mine to two to four people. So you can have two, one or two people in each boat, uh, some fishing gear, and then launch out of the harbor and go wherever the fish are and just show them along the way, like all the whales and dolphins, cast some baits, you know, just have a good time. Uh, yeah. That's one option. And then I've also been looking at the commercial fishery, which would be super awesome. Have a pretty big plan for that. But getting started, you know, it's time consuming and startup fees. <laughs> God, I know. Well, that's freaking awesome, man. I love, I love seeing the stuff that you post. Like I, and you're, you're very consistent, like your stories. I like, I don't, maybe it's cause I click them all the time, but they're always like at the top of the Instagram page. Like as a, oh, nice. and I was like <laughs> one of the ones that's always like suggesting me to click. And I like get all excited. I'm like, Oh man, maybe he's got another Mako. Maybe he's got some kind of big tuna or something. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, man, I know we're winding close on our scheduled time, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I would encourage other people to go check out some of the stuff you're doing with those boats. I see that like being potentially like, I don't want to say the next big thing, but it's like, you know, you look at that type is, of... Um, where the economy is, especially here in Southern California, mm. boats are expensive. Everybody wants top dollar for what they have. They're trying to, you know, resell it. And there's a lot of people that just want to get out on the water for a couple hours on the weekends and stuff. And it's it's a very easy step. You put a couple grand into one of these and you're out there, you're out there fishing and catching, you know, your personal best halibut. Well, dude, trust me, Florida's the same way with the boat thing is just ridiculous. Everything's getting crazy expensive. And I am constantly looking at ways to keep doing what I love and try to catch big fish without breaking the bank. You know what I mean? So it's like those boats really interesting to me. So um, anyway, I I appreciate you coming on here and, and, and explaining some of the pros and the cons. But uh, other people who might be listening that want to see, if nothing else, just the crazy pictures with like the Makos and the these big tuna and stuff in your lap, <laughs> like in in these inflatable boats. How could they find your stuff? Like your Instagram, so on, uh, many pages. Yeah, on Instagram, it's Chris underscore Fish underscore Page. Super easy. Uh, just go on there, and it's a it's a public profile all the pictures are there. There's some videos. And then up in the bio, there's a link to YouTube. Uh, it's one of my videos and you can check out my YouTube channel there. There's nothing too great on there. There's some fish catching, but I don't do good editing or anything like that. It's all raw footage. So if you want to check those out, go give me some likes and views. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I got to check out more of that too. And you know, you don't have to be out there acting like some silly guy. So a lot of times all I want to see is the fish. Like if I'm yep. interested in those boats, I, you know, cut to the chase. Let, let me see these things in action. You know what I mean? But, uh, your fishery looks awesome. It's a whole continent away from where I'm at. So, um, appreciate you coming on here and talking yep. about some of it, but yeah, definitely I'll, I'll throw like those links up on the screen and stuff like that. So people can go check it out. But, uh, anyway, man, I appreciate your time and, And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to Boundless Pursuit. Tune in each week as we bring stories and insight from uniquely talented anglers and outdoorsmen. And if you enjoyed this show, I want to hear from you. 
Be sure to leave a five-star review as this is going to drive the growth and exposure of this show. And if you have feedback or guest suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com. For all other collections of media and contact information, please visit www.boundless-pursuit.com.